Well, thank you for the many questions. Uh, many more than uh, there'll be time to get to tonight. Like before, I've grouped some together around different themes. So the first set... Regarding the question this morning about manipulation, what are the indications that we need to increase either energy, concentration, or mindfulness? And what things do you do, what things do you try to create the right balance? Joseph, do you still have times when you just can't concentrate? (laughs) When no matter how often you come back to one half breath, the mind either wanders or goes to sleep. If so, what do you do? If not, what should we do? (laughs) What makes the effort work in one moment and not in the next? And one of the things that happens over years of practice, not necessarily within one retreat, but when I look back, you know, over 20 years of practice, there really is a deepening of the base level of concentration and mindfulness. And it's something like an image that I've used, and I can't remember that I've talked about this before, But an image that describes that development is very much, uh, if you imagine an arch, you know, and you're balanced on top of the arch, and then you fall off one side, and there's all the effort to get back up to the top, climbing back up, and you fall off the other side, and you have to make the effort to climb back up. And so a lot of the time, you know, a lot of our practice just feels like it's climbing, climbing back to the moment or efforting to come back to the moment. At a certain point, as the concentration stabilizes over time, not just the ups and downs of a day, but as it stabilizes over time, it's as if the arch becomes a trough. And we are resting at the bottom of the trough, and still the mind gets pulled out. It gets pulled out by thoughts or... Uh, hindrances of one kind or another. But because we're resting at the bottom of the trough, naturally and easily, the mind comes back to it. It settles. So the present or the state of mindfulness is like home base. We get pulled out, but it's much easier to come back. And so I've just noticed over the many years of practice that the fundamental baseline of concentration and mindfulness has definitely increased. You know, it comes back to that place of natural ease. But the question is when, whether we're in the trough or on top of the arch, wherever we are in our practice, the question is what do we do you know, to create a sense of balance when we find the mind is just lost in thought a lot. We can't 
we can't uh, connect very well. There are a couple of things that um, working with it and you can work with it. <clears throat> these are different levels of approach. Simplest level. And I've done this at those times when my mind was just, for one reason or another, just a momentum of thinking. You know, and very difficult to just be in the moment. A uh, very simple remedy <clears throat> that I found helpful is to sit with the eyes open. Now, it's not only for sleepiness. It can also be for just a lot of thinking. Because when the eyes are closed, it's easier to stay lost in that dreamlike level of consciousness, carried away again and again. Eyes open, and even just slightly open, and downcast, it connects us with the fact that we're sitting here. And I find that it often cuts the momentum of the thoughts When we're lost in that way, either in a lot of thoughts or in sleepiness, another level remedy is sitting back and simply asking the question, what's happening? Because often, if we're focused too narrowly on the breath and something else is going on that's not being noticed, even a lot of thinking, even if that's what's going on, or it could be some unpleasant feelings in the body, it could be some underlying emotion, something that's calling our attention, but we're not opening to it. We're trying to stay with the breath, so there's that ongoing struggle, and we find that the mind can settle. Simply settling back with that question, okay, what's happening? What's the big picture here? What's going on? Oh, thinking. Just make a big, big frame. It's like a Jackson Pollock painting. You know, okay, our mind is like that. But we put a big frame around it and we simply are aware that's what's happening. So then it's no problem. We're already back in mindfulness. We don't have to have that stop in order to be mindful. We simply have to recognize that that's what's happening. Or we can put a frame around sleepiness. As I say, it may be some undercurrent of emotion or a heaviness in the body, whatever. But what's happening is often a very good way to really reconnect when the effort to be just with the breath, just with the half-breath, is not working. The mind is not responding to that. Why is the issue of sexual thoughts and fantasy never discussed in Dharma talks? I have never heard the subject of sexuality addressed by a Buddhist teacher, but I'm certain it is an issue for most people. Nah. This is really a big, a big topic, you know, in practice. So I'm, I'm glad the question was asked because it's a chance to at least touch, you know, it'll be 
concise, but at least touch on different ways of relating to this very, very powerful force, as we all know. I think it would probably be most unusual for people to be sitting here for three months and at one time or another not be dealing with sexual energy, sexual fantasies. You know, this is a powerful, powerful energy in our lives. So I'll just talk about it from a few different sides, a few different angles, uh, in ways that I've worked with it and have understood it in my practice. One thing that was very interesting to me in experiencing that and exploring its nature was to really feel it on to feel it on the energy level. What's that sexual energy in the body? And as we feel it, and as I was doing that, there was really a great discovery um, that I found very helpful. Began to see through the, the meditation practice in general, and then looking at that particular kind of force in particular, that it's all the same energy. The body is an energy system. You know, when we're sitting and open, and at times, and you may have had this experience at least at times, where we're really opening to the body, not as something solid, not as a form, but really to an energy flow. You know, and sometimes we feel it in particular places in the body, sometimes it's really a unified field. What became very apparent was but it's not that sexual energy is somehow different, that it's a different energy than other kind in the body. But what I began to see in my practice was it's the same energy experienced differently depending on where in the body our attention is located. Right? And so, for example, if there's a lot of energy in the genitals and the pelvis, you know, and our, our attention is cold there, we might well experience that as sexual energy. We move our attention up and we experience the energy at the heart center, it will have a totally different flavor. Or we experience the flow of energy in the head, a totally different flavor again. And so to see it as being one aspect or one flavor of the energy that's circulating through our embodies, or we could say the energy that is our body, began to put it in perspective. It didn't, it no longer had a mystique to it, you know, as being something completely unique. It's just part of the bigger field. Okay, so that's, that's just one thing which you might, you might explore a little bit. So then the question is, the desire in sexual energy can become very strong, as we know. I mean, it can be tremendously seductive. You get really pulled into it, get lost in it, become addicted to it. So then the question is, when it's strong... When we're locked in, 
what are different ways of working with it? What can we learn from it? What insights, what wisdom can we develop? In terms of working with it so that we really begin to free our minds in the experience of it, approach this from a couple of different sides. One is, I think it's very helpful to see what triggers it. And what triggers it can be several different things. Sometimes, you know, an image, a sexual image comes to mind. Or an image leading into a whole fantasy that we're playing out. So it's a thought image fantasy. Sometimes it's the actual sensations in the body. We feel certain sensations and that may give rise to the images. So we just want to see, investigate, how is it arising? What's, what's actually the process? There was one period in my practice, and it's just a very distinct memory, although obviously these thoughts come, or feelings come at different times. But one particular time that, that I recall very vividly, I was just lost in sexual fantasy again and again and again. And it was very alluring. It was very enticing. Because, of course, our minds know just which fantasies will catch us. (laughs) I don't know how it knows, but (laughs) it knows. So after having gotten lost just, you know, endless number of times... Uh, I began to devise some strategies which I found helpful. And I think, you know, during the past weeks I may have mentioned these. One is, and something that really worked very well, was that double note. The image would arise in my mind. You know, and this is an image that I had just been lost in for 500 times. The image would come and I would note contact pleasant. And I think I mentioned this earlier, the double note. Because if I just noted seeing, it wasn't strong enough. If I just noted pleasant, it wasn't strong enough. I just get pulled in. But when I really focused on those links of the chain of dependent origination, because that's the law which is describing how it is that we get caught. This contact, this feeling, this desire this grasping. So by focusing on the two links before it leads, it goes into desire, into wanting. Yes, the image arose, a contact, this contact with the image and it's pleasant. It was amazing. It really was like hitting the acupuncture point. It just, it unhooked the mind then from going into it with desire and then clinging. So you might try that. It was, for me, it was kind of interesting because it was the direct application of the Buddha's teachings on dependent origination, you know, which sometimes can seem so theoretical. But here it was. It was you know, that was the practice of it, and it bore such great fruit. Okay, so that's from one side. Another side, again, I think I mentioned this before, with recurring 
sexual desire or any other kind of desire, you know, that we've just been caught in endlessly, to really see, and we all know this from our own experience, (coughs) that it's just going down a dead-end road. You know, we get caught in the desire, we come to the end of it, and okay, back to the breath. Here we are again. It's not that there's any hope of actualizing the fantasy. (laughs) It's just going down a dead end in our mind. And, you know, there's nice scenery along the way, but it doesn't lead any place. So we do this again and again and again and again, you know. At a certain point, maybe, the mind wakes up and it realizes, yeah, this, this is not going anyplace. Why bother? So that's a kind of reflection, you know, of the uselessness of getting lost in it. That was really helpful at times. There's one other piece that I think is very uh, instructive regarding desire whether, again, it could be sexual desire, it could be any other kind, that really can be learned so deeply on a retreat. And it's so counter to our usual conditioning. Because usually we have the feeling or the sense that we need to fulfill the desire in order to resolve it in some way especially when it's recurring. You know, if, if we can fulfill it, then it'll come to an end. Well, of course, we have done that many times in our lives, and it comes to the end for the moment, but it just arises again. But what's really helpful to see is we're sitting and the, the sexual desire is there, or the fantasy, and we're watching, 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 and maybe... You know, it's very intense or energizing or seductive, however it is we're feeling it. Watching, 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 watching. And at a certain point, it's gone. Because desire, like everything else, is impermanent. Desire does not have to be fulfilled in order to go away. And this is a great understanding. Mostly in our lives, we're driven by desire. Desire is the driving force in samsara. This is very deep. And to see that there's nothing we have to do about it because it's impermanent. And then it's very interesting to really watch that moment of transition from being caught in the grip of a sexual fantasy, or again, this is, this is, or any other desire, but we're caught in the grip of it, and even though, you know, we're experiencing it as being very pleasurable, notice that moment, if you're able to be mindful of it, and, and to really be noting, 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 and then, aware of that moment, that transition moment of going from desire to end of desire, 
pay attention in that moment to what it feels like. In my experience, no matter how pleasurable the fantasy was, the relief of being let out of the grip of the desire brings such a deeper kind of happiness and it's just reinforcing to pay attention to that. That the pleasure of the fantasy, the pleasure of the desire, while real enough on its level, is nothing compared to the happiness that comes from the mind being free of that desire. It really does feel like being let out of the grip of something. Now, as with all of these responses and suggestions, it's really not a question of believing this. All of it is, is, is an invitation for you to look and investigate yourself. There's a very big area to look at. One last thing about sexual desire in practice. Especially when it's not so much the, uh, you know, the fantasy image level, but when we're really feeling that energy in our body, just the sexual energy becoming strong. I noticed over the years of my practice quite a few different uh, relationships to it. You know, as we open up to this bodily energy, to the body as an energy system, we begin to feel that sexual energy, it can be very, very pleasant. You know, and so I remember periods of my, oh, this is great. I'll just sit here and feel this. <laughs> and the fact that I could, you know, and nobody knew what I was doing. <laughs> Yeah, and it's kind of waves, of, as you know. It's very, it's a very blissful feeling. So after, you know, playing with that one for a while, then I realized, boy, you're really getting caught in this. You know, I started just, okay, you know, stop that. So then, when the energy came, I found my mind doing just the opposite. It was like, okay, just stay away. I don't want to. I don't want this to happen. You know, and there was, there was almost, I wouldn't quite call it fear of it, but just aversion to it, you know, of really pushing it away. So then I watched that for a while. You know, that became my response. Finally, the mind reached a place of the balance between the two, of really coming to that place of equanimity, you know, of impartiality, the energy starts coming, it's pleasant, feel it, the mind's not going into it, it's not indulging it, it's not pushing it away, it's just another thing to be with. And that felt so free. You know, then I was just sitting, it comes. It's just something else. It's delicate because the, the subtlety of indulgence or resistance, you know, there can be just slight movements of the mind one way or the other. But if we're watching, if we're really paying attention, it is really possible just to be, you know, the example I've used, the openness of the open window. It's just something coming through, 
not feeding it, not pushing it away. And my experience is that it just comes and lasts for usually a very short time and passes through and the process, the, the energetic process continues. So this is some of the ways you know, that I've worked with this. It's very, very helpful to really include this exploration, this investigation in the practice because it is such a powerful part of our lives. And the more deeply we can understand it here on retreat, the more wisely and skillfully we can use that energy outside of retreat. And we need to understand it because it can be the cause of so much suffering if we don't. In the face of impermanence and the goal of letting go, where does, and if how, commitment and reliability come in to children, to a partner, friends? Okay, in the, in the light of impermanence, what does commitment and reliability mean? I think here, too, we were speaking this morning about the importance of language and how different words really connote different mind states and different understandings. I think it's very helpful to see the difference between commitment and attachment. Attachment to things which are impermanent is obviously the cause of suffering. If we're trying to hold on to something which in its nature is going to change, obviously we're going to suffer because of that. Commitment is not attachment to things staying a certain way. Commitment is that sense of relationship, whether it's to a person or to our practice. Over time... So there's a commitment to our practice. We come and we sit and we walk and we stay with it. But that commitment can be done without any attachment at all to it being one way or another. If we try to fix our experience, if we try to hold on or make it a certain way, whether it's in sitting or in our relationships, don't change. You know, it's... First, it's useless because we all do change and our relationships are changing all the time, just as our sitting, our meditation does. And it causes a lot of suffering, it causes a lot of conflict. It's not honoring the truth of how things are happening. Commitment can be, or that sense of reliability can be, yes, I'm going to be here for all the changes. I'm going to be open to all the changes, just as we are in our practice. I just think there's a key distinction here between attachment and commitment. Could you say something about harm and harmlessness? It seems to me that unless I go to the extremes of simple living, some harm is resulting. Is it strictly a matter of having wholesome motivation or intention?
I think intention and motivation is the piece that we have to look at most carefully uh, when we're paying attention to our actions in the light of harm or harmlessness. You know, one of the famous stories from the Buddhist time of an arhant monk who was blind, walking back and forth, and unintentionally stepping on ants and killing them. And the other monks went to the Buddha and said, how could he be an arhant if he's you know, killing the ants? And the Buddha said, in a quite, quite a common sense way, there was no intention in the mind right, of that monk to harm the ants. Uh, he was blind, he couldn't see, and so that was happening. And I think that reflects a very... Uh, basic truth, that there's no way to be alive and not have harm happen to other beings because of it. Whether it's like the blind monk who you know, is stepping on the ants, or you know, every time we breathe in and breathe out, who knows how many little beings uh, there are walking down the street, or driving a car, you know, how many insects get... Uh, killed on the windshield. So I think it's unrealistic to think that somehow we could live our lives in such a way that no beings are harmed. We can live our lives striving to not intentionally harm a being. But even this gets very... Um, Subtle, because sometimes we harm by not doing things. So it's not only that we have to really pay attention to our actions and see what our motivation is, which is, I think, an important challenge in our lives and a very great practice. What is the motivation behind our actions? But sometimes harm comes from not seeing from delusion. I'll just tell one story. It was really quite a painful experience for me years ago when we invited Deepama um, you know, to come teach her, and she came with her family. And we, she was living in the, the house across the street, which here in IMS lingo we call hats, house across the street. <laughs> well, before Deepama came, at that time, the house had been rented out to two Sangha people. You know, and they had been living there. When we knew Deepama was coming, we asked them, you know, if it was possible for us to use the house, and very graciously, they moved out, they made other arrangements. We were all tremendously excited. Now, this was Deepama's first visit, and, and we as I'm sure you've heard many stories, she was just the most wonderful teacher. You know, we felt such love and devotion. And so we were all excited, and she comes, and, and we're busy meeting with her and, you know, arranging groups. And, and then about, I don't know, it was a month later or two months later, one of the people who had been living there, and, you know, we had asked to move out, came up to my room really upset 
And as she started talking, she was actually, <laughs> she was very creative. She was acting this out like in a little psychodrama, you know, in my room. And the, the gist of it was that in all that time and in all our excitement of being with Deepama, not once did we think of inviting them to come and meet. I mean, even now when I, <laughs> I feel so uh, sad, you know, just thinking about that. And this is like 15 years ago. It was just by not paying attention, we can harm. You know, and so this really, this really speaks to the need for clear comprehension in a situation that we don't get so locked in to what we're doing that we're missing the bigger picture, even if it's... I mean, that wasn't a huge picture. <laughs> that was just a little bit bigger no, than what I had been seeing. So it was very, that was a really important lesson for me. You know, that part of not harming is taking in the context. Um, I was wondering if you had any advice around depression how to catch the leading edge or front runner of depression and how to pull out of pull out of it if one's awareness only catches it on the downward spiral have you any experience or understanding of depression including how the body gets affected i don't really have a personal experience of it although i've worked with a lot of people you know, because it's not an uncommon, it's not an uncommon uh, state. With depression, I think we need to really look at uh, look at it from different levels. And first, before I get more into the meditative level, I think it's important to also um, check out the medical level. You know, because it's often a biochemical thing where medication can be really helpful. And sometimes people have the idea, well, I'm meditating and I'm a spiritual person and I shouldn't be taking meds. And Not that I'm you know, suggesting you run out to your nearest pharmacy, but that at times it's totally appropriate and exactly the right thing to do. So don't discount that especially if the depression is really severe. Uh, I think it's important to know that that can be a very helpful way of working, and we need to. And there's also a way of working with it on a meditative level. And I'll just mention a few really simple things, but... It would be most helpful to work one-on-one with whoever your teacher is. As with so many other states that we get pulled into, to the extent that we can really be watching the process and catch the trigger point, okay, what is it that triggers the slide into depression? And we might have to have slid down many, many times before we really see or can see what's triggering it. 
might be certain thoughts, might be certain emotions, might be certain feelings in the body, something. You know, we're going along, going along, can begin to feel the slide. Okay, what is it? Can we catch that point? Very often there's a constellation of emotions, you know, that may be obscured. Again, it's very helpful to unpack the different emotions that are going on. Could be unworthiness, could be rage, could be anger, could be, I don't know, a lot of different things. If they're not being seen clearly, you know, if we have a pattern of not acknowledging them, not opening to them, so then they can be part of what triggers the move into depression. Sometimes it's really helpful to switch from Vipassana if we really feel kind of lost in it and caught in it and the mindfulness is not strong enough to be with it. Just to switch practice and maybe do some of the Brahma Viharas, you know, of metta or compassion. Because compassion, any of the Brahma Viharas, as a samadhi practice, brings a certain stability and strength and comfort to the mind. So as a kind of antidote to that energy of depression, it can be helpful. And what I'm about to suggest, I, I just know from, I don't know if this will, would really be helpful, uh, for somebody really in the throes of depression, but it's been helpful for me in the more ordinary, you know, what I call just the down times. Uh, I find it very helpful to uh, be outside and be in nature. Sometimes, you know, when we're staying enclosed in rooms, it's as if our mental energy just kind of bounces off the walls and back into us, and we're just kind of caught up in whatever our particular uh, energy of the mind is. And I find that just going out, and especially uh, you know, around here where it's so beautiful, uh, just being in the beauty of nature, I found very uh, heart-opening. Can you discuss the phenomenon of bright light appearing during practice and, medit- and radiating throughout the whole inside of the head? Also, could you say something about something on inner voices occasionally communicating with a yogi? <laughs> bright light. Seeing, 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 seeing. <laughs> There are actually two approaches. If we're in the Vipassana awareness wisdom mode, then it really is just noting it. You know, and it generally comes as the concentration deepens. It's not an unusual uh, meditative experience. And it's just to be aware of it like anything else. If one is doing a samadhi type practice, then the light can be used as an object of one-pointedness, and then the, ob- the object would really be to become absorbed in it. 
So it's two quite different uh, techniques, depending on which kind of practice we're doing. In terms of inner voices, (laughs) it's important to have a pretty good sense of whether you really are seeing or hearing it as being sort of a, an audible an audible thought right that's we're experiencing as a voice in the mind or beginning to have the belief that there is actually somebody talking to you if it's the latter please come speak to us <laughs> You know, when it starts to take on a reality, uh, it might be some devas, but it could also be uh, a little imbalance starting to happen. Remember early in my teaching career, uh, way before I had much familiarity with psychological, deep psychological issues that could come up, there was this one yogi who kept reporting he was hearing voices. And I said, just hearing, no, just note hearing, hearing. And the voices were getting realer and realer and realer, you know, just note hearing, hearing, hearing. Finally came in one day and he said, the voices are telling me to kill the teachers. <laughs> Maybe you should stop meditating. <laughs> we waited a little too long. <laughs> So it is important, you know, when, when it's taking on that kind of being directed by these voices, that can definitely be a sign of some psychological imbalance that, that really does need some attention. If it's just, as I say, you know, we're hearing these audible thoughts in our mind, that's, that's quite harmless. Okay. Do you believe in God? By this I mean some vast, sentient, and ultimately unknowable being who exists outside of the thirty-something realms where us mortals spin through samsara. If not, do you know of other serious practitioners who do? I'm wondering if the non-theistic teachings of the Buddha leave room for belief in God. I pray to God slash Great Spirit at the start of every sitting, And there have been times in life where incredible things happened. Moments when I could have died and suffered greatly, but where divine intervention seemed to happen. Was this just unfolding of karma? Lastly, it seems our natural state of heart-mind is loving and kind. But why is this so? Could this be seen as the Holy Spirit or the divine spark that dances within each of us? Thank you for answering these simple questions. <laughs> Did I tell you the story the, during the first half of my uh, investigation to the existence of God? Say, I've done this investigation. When, when I was a freshman in college, this question consumed me. It just felt like my whole life depended on my knowing the answer to that question. Does God exist or not? 
And I got so caught up in the question and so determined to know, I gave myself a week. (laughs) 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 Because I had to know. It It just felt like the most vital question. I forgot (laughs) what I decided. (laughs) But from the perspective now, the question is really an interesting one. I think really a lot depends on what we mean by the word God. Because people use that word in so many different ways. If it's the sense of some creator being, you know, who's watching over the whole show, who created it all, that is definitely not a Buddhist idea. And although it is a central idea of many religions, uh, but that meaning of God is, the Buddha talked of gods, you know, the Brahma gods and uh, great vast beings, but not in the sense of being the absolute truth. If what we mean by God, if we're using that word to mean ultimate or absolute truth, then I think it's really a synonym for Dharma. I think one of the problems that we face as Westerners is that there is so much cultural uh, freight around the word. You know, and people, people bring many different understandings. So really to have this dialogue, it would mean, what do you mean by that word? But I want to take it a step further, because in the question there was something that struck me. Do you believe in God? By this I mean some vast, sentient, and ultimately unknowable being who exists outside of the 30-something realms. What struck me was that if we either believe or have the understanding that God is ultimately unknowable, then to say anything, to say vast, to say sentient, to say outside the realm of the 30 planes of existence, because all of that is in the realm of knowing. If we're really seeing, yes, this is ultimately unknowable, then I think one simply has to rest in the openness, in the mystery, without drawing conclusions. And in this sense, it's resting. And here's where for me, even though I don't sort of use that word very much, but I could, I could see it being used you know, to mean the Dharma, if we're saying, yes, just rest in the truth of experience, 
being with this whole mystery unfolding without conjecture, without belief, and letting it unfold, letting our understanding unfold and deepen as it does, even to the extent, you know, in the Buddhist language, of becoming enlightened, becoming awakened, of touching the ultimate truth. That, for me, seems a much safer and To have beliefs about something we don't know seems to me just a belief. To have faith in ultimate truth, to have faith in the mystery, keeps us open to our growing understanding. And that's why I feel that there's a huge difference between faith and belief. And faith feels much more grounded and much more open with many less conclusions. And it's true in in times of, you know, great suffering. Often people do pray and maybe pray to God or their understanding of God, or within the Buddhist, you know, people might pray to the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and benevolent beings. And there are mysterious forces at work. Can we be in the experience of the suffering, of the prayer, of whatever happens next, either the healing or the not healing, and just be with the experience, the truth of the experience as it is, rather than creating concepts about it, which are always limited. The concepts are not the experience. Is this making any sense? It's, it's quite a, it's quite a intriguing topic, you know. And in five minutes, it's really hard to cover God. <laughs> but as I read the question, it really did intrigue me. And so these are just some of the reflections I had. Uh, it actually leads into a whole series of questions basically about nirvana, nibbana, ultimate truth. So I thought there was it's a good segue. I'll just read some of these questions. Sometimes I think, well, if I haven't gotten enlightened in this sitting, I haven't really done anything much. But when I look back on my life, five years, ten years, I see less suffering today. So there really seems to be a gradual awakening, isn't there? (laughs) Can you speak to that? 
Could you speak this evening about consciousness as in the aggregates versus awareness as in that which knows? How are they similar and or different? You have practiced in the Vajrayana as well as the Vipassana tradition. Do you think it wise for a student of the Dharma to learn both traditions at the same time? Or is it best to have a home in one or the other? Or just let it unfold? If all things are conditioned, including the planting of the seed of intention, wouldn't enlightenment be a state of grace rather than the result of right effort? Would you speak on the relationship between the natural mind, the openness of an open window, on natural state, and resting in the deathless, Nibbana? The non-suffering experienced when the hindrances are absent, having a balanced mind, seeing the three characteristics, how is it different than the non-suffering of a moment of enlightenment? Teachers in the Theravada tradition, not to mention other traditions, seem to differ remarkably on what enlightenment is. For example, Ajahn Sumedho all but dismisses or even ridicules the classic stages of enlightenment model that Upandita upholds. They also disagree on the importance of attaining it. For Upandita it's urgent, for Ajahn Sumedho it's seemingly not important. Is there a definition of enlightenment that the two teachings would agree on? And how do we reconcile their contrasting views on the importance of attaining it? What does it mean to enter the stream? Okay, so this, these were the enlightenment questions. <laughs> I talk a lot about this in the new book that I just finished, One Dharma, which was really my own struggle of being with and studying with different teachers, all of whom seemed very realized, who had very different views, and very different models on enlightenment, you know, on Nibbana. And really the last 10 years have been, in my own practice, you know, in study, have been the exploration of what do you do with that? Now, how do you hold it when two or more of you know, your most respected and beloved teachers are saying opposite things about that which is most important to you? So it was, it was a genuine struggle, and over the years really come to, for myself at least, an understanding of one Dharma, that there is a way of holding it all. So I'll just kind of give a few highlights, uh, you know, of how I've been thinking about this. First, I think all the traditions will agree on enlightenment being freeing the mind from suffering, freeing the mind from greed, hatred, and delusion. I think in any tradition, in any path, 
that would be seen or understood as the goal. And the Buddha said it very directly. He said, this holy life does not have gain, honor, or renown for its benefit, or attainment of virtue for its benefit, or knowledge and vision for its benefit, but it is this unshakable deliverance of mind that is the goal of the holy life, its heartwood and its end. It's the unshakable deliverance from what? From suffering. So that is in common. I think it's also in common that the different traditions would describe enlightenment or the unborn or the absolute in terms like it's unborn, it's unformed, it's unconditioned. Because to be free of suffering means that it's not doesn't have a conditioned nature. And just as a description of this, this is, which I loved a lot, it was lines from a poem by the Polish Nobel Prize winner, poet, Wisława Borska. Anyway, she said, there is so much everything that nothing is hidden quite nicely. And it just, somehow, I just intuitively, she captured, she captured so much everything that nothing is hidden quite nicely. Okay, so what are the differences? Because I think people in the different traditions would agree that enlightenment is freedom from suffering, it's freedom from greed, hatred, delusion. It is, it is a quality of freedom. I think the differences, many of the differences, it's 8.30, so let's do this tomorrow. <laughs> no, no, <it's> just... <laughs> but if my colleagues would like to leave, that's... <laughs> uh, this will take a few minutes. I, th- <laughs> I think that the differences really revolve around two basic questions. One question, we're talking of freedom, of enlightenment, of nirvana, of the ultimate. One question which highlights the difference is how is it experienced? How do we actually experience it? And people will describe that experience in different ways, and I'll, I'll mention those. And the second question, which is sort of a profound philosophic question, but has great bearing on our understanding, it's whether nirvana, nibbana, the ultimate, is imminent, which means that it actually is the nature of the mind itself. It's not something apart from the mind. It is the nature of the mind. You could call it the groundless ground of openness, the openness of the open window. 
out of which everything arises and things go back to. So that's the view that nirvana is imminent. It's here. The second view is that nirvana is not imminent. It's a transcendent reality. It's completely apart from this flow of changing conditions. It's neither the ground nor the source for anything at all. That all of this, all of this conditioned reality, has nothing to do with the ultimate. So that's the transcendent view. So just hold these two. These are the two big questions. How is it experienced? And is it imminent? Is it transcendent? So how do we experience? What are the different ways nirvana could be experienced? An image which just might help highlight the differences. Just imagine being in a room. You know, and the refrigerator is humming. But we don't even know it's humming. You know, it's so much just part of the background. We're not even aware it's humming until it stops. And you probably had that experience of it's stopping and all of a sudden there's a certain peace, you know, in the silence that we didn't even know was missing until it stopped. Well, we could think of one way of thinking of Nibbana is the stopping of the hum of conditioned experience. You know, we're going along this whole Nama Rupa thing, you know, the whole mind-body thing, and Steve's going to talk more about the five aggregates. That's the hum. You know, and so one understanding of Nibbana is, okay, the hum stops. What a relief. But even then, views diverge. One view of the humming stopped is that awareness itself is part of the hum. And so the stopping of the hum is really the the cessation, the stopping even of awareness. The other view, and these views are even within Theravada teachings, much less differences between the other traditions. The other view is that the hum stops, but that there is an awareness which knows the hum has stopped. Do you see the difference? This is from uh, a book called... It's called The Magic of the Mind. It's uh, by a monk in Sri Lanka. Here, then, is a consciousness of the very cessation of consciousness. Instead of a consciousness of objects, here we have a consciousness without an object or support. Whereas under normal circumstances, consciousness mirrors and manifests something, in this consciousness it is non-manifestative. It's like consciousness not manifesting anything, because there's no object, and aware of the cessation of objects. So in one, there's a cessation even of awareness, and in the other, there's an awareness of the cessation. 
two different views. There's a view in Theravada, and this is particularly in the Thai tradition, that pure awareness is Nibbana. Not the awareness, not the knowing of consciousness as you know, one of the five aggregates. There's a, there's a very striking, vivid image describing this. It's in the, it's in the uh, Majjhima Nikaya, the Middle End Sayings. Uh, this is a discourse actually being given to the nuns. And it's pretty graphic. It talks of a skinned cow where all the tendons and ligaments attaching the skin to the carcass, to the body, have been cut. And then the skin placed back on the carcass. So the tendons and the ligaments and you know all those connections, that's symbolic for all the attachment and clinging. So all of that's been cut. The carcass are the five aggregates, you know, just this, this whole mind-body process. So the image of the mind completely unattached, unclinging to anything. The mind free of any connection to the aggregates arising. That's another description. You know, and sort of could be understood in the sense of, yes, pure awareness. That's the awareness free of attachment, free of clinging. So you see that even within Theravada, and again, different views again in Tibetan and Zen, although related to one or another of these, So the question then is, how do we hold? Because great realized masters have expressed their experience in one or another of these ways. How do we hold it? There are two things I would like to suggest. One is, there's a teaching about two kinds of Nibbana And different ones of these descriptions may be referring to one or another of these kinds of Nibbana. One kind is called Kalesa Nibbana, which means the Nibbana, the cessation of defilements. That's the mind free of attachment. That's like the, the skin unattached to the cow. All the attachments, all the clinging, all the kalesas, all the defilements have ceased. So that mind, that's kalesa nibbana, that's the experience of kalesa nibbana. The other kind of nibbana is called skanda or kanda nibbana, which is the cessation of the, the aggregates. You know, so for example, and of course, what I'm about to say is completely unknowable. A 
of what happens to an arhant or a Buddha after their death. Now, one, one interpretation is that the, the aggregates do not reform because there's no clinging. It's the cessation of the aggregates. Okay, completely confused? <laughs> People will describe their experience of what we call the ultimate, or nirvana, or the absolute, or God, whatever. They're all just words. People will describe their experience in very different ways depending on their particular conditioning, the practices that they do, even the language that we speak conditions how we will talk about experience. The important piece is to understand that the description is not the experience. So even when we hear very different descriptions, they're just like fingers pointing to the moon. And we don't want to get into this battle, oh, this finger is right, no, this finger is right. Because they can be pointing from very different places. You know, when we look up at the sky and we see a full moon and a new moon, we would describe that in very different ways. Oh, it's void. It's full. It's shining. It's dark. It's the same moon. It's the same moon that's in the sky, but we're just seeing it from, and describing it from a relative perspective. Well, people's description of the ultimate, of the absolute, will vary depending on a lot of different factors if we don't cling to the description then there's really no problem coming back to the understanding that a common understanding that nibbana the ultimate is the mind free of greed it's free of hatred it's free of delusion So it brings us right back, you know, and it becomes very clear what our practice is. Because our practice is freeing our minds from those kalesas moment to moment. And whether stages of enlightenment are important or they're not important, that's another difference of model. You know, stream entry. What is stream entry? It's when one's faith in the Dharma is unshakable, when there is no turning back, when there's no when there's no force that can pull us back in the other direction. For some people, it may come in a very dramatic moment. You know, just an explosive moment of insight, and it's very dramatic, very noticeable. For other people. It may be the gradual, and what, this one of the images used of you know a boat, boat tied to the dock, and the rope is in the water, and the water is just slowly rotting away the, the strands of the rope. So in a very imperceptible way, the mind may become freed. 
It's not just one way. We will all, all kind of walking this journey, walking this path, conditioned by so many forces. Our descriptions will all be different. What does it all come back to? Liberation through non-clinging to anything. There's not a single Buddhist tradition that says cling. And so even though, you know, this, this is of tremendous interest, you know, because it's really talking about what is of ultimate value. And even if we visit that space rarely, you know, it really can inform our entire lives. What is of ultimate significance? What is of ultimate value in our lives? What's so important is not to get caught, not to get attached to a concept, to a model, to a description. For further elaboration, the book will be out in June. (laughs) Sorry for having gone on so long. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.